Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scriptures comes from Proverbs 37 9. Two things I ask of you deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me poverty, neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? For lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, help us to uh, do well under your word today and to live lives that glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today we are looking at what the book of Proverbs says about money. And I just want you to know that Jake asked me to preach this sermon. Uh, I said I would come, and he said, preach on money, and I said, that would be very fine. Uh, I told our church, uh, when I, I had never preached a whole sermon on money in the 10 years since we planted Christ City. We always work through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and so if you're new with us today, normally we're in a book of the Bible, just moving through it verse by verse. Proverbs is a little bit different, and so you need to take the entirety of Proverbs and study the whole book from chapter 1 to 31, and then see what it says about that topic. And so that's how we're approaching this series as we've been going through uh, a number of different topics in Proverbs uh, over this summer. And uh, so today I will talk about money. Now as we get into it, I want to give you a bit of an outline. Uh, We're going to talk about our posture toward wealth, what we do with our wealth, and wisely building wealth. Our posture toward wealth, what we do with our wealth, and wisely building wealth. And before we look at those three points in specific, what I want to do is walk through a bit of an orientation of what Proverbs says about this overall. And so what what we'll look at is, in, in some ways, what Proverbs has to say about the complexity of economics. And, and the complexity of economics as a sentence that comes out of my mouth sounds immediately very dry and boring. And I need you to know that this is going to be a little more teachy than preachy. This is going to be a little more information than inspiration today. And that's why uh, we've made sure that the air conditioning is turned up quite high uh, so that it's nice and cool in here. I don't want to see anybody nodding off because of the, 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 the topic at hand and the way that I'm treating it. But I feel like we need a bit of a framework to think through before we start to apply it directly. So I'm gonna build a bit of a framework through Proverbs and then we'll get to these points. Um, Proverbs deals with the rich and the poor, the rich and the poor. And the continuum of wealth in between the rich and the poor, uh, we have to understand are not necessarily moral categories. They're not necessarily moral categories. It just deals with the fact that there are some who are rich and that there are some who are poor. Proverbs is honest about this. Rich does not necessarily equal good, and rich does not necessarily equal bad. Poor does not necessarily equal good, and poor does not necessarily equal bad. And so as we look at what Proverbs says about money and wealth, that's why this becomes so complex. 
In Proverbs, again, the rich and the poor are not moral categories, which is why you need to qualify them with some kind of correlative term to give a little bit more of a well-rounded definition to see what we might say. Now, I want to take you to a couple of quotes from a scholar named Bruce Waltke. Bruce Waltke said, wisdom in Proverbs and its correlative term righteousness is all about being rightly related to God, to other human beings, to all creatures, and to the environment. Wisdom in Proverbs needs the correlative term righteousness because wisdom without qualification is a morally neutral term. And as I've studied Proverbs, I'm convinced that the same thing is true about our wealth. It is a morally neutral thing, so you need another term to define how it's good or bad. The rich and the poor in Proverbs are morally neutral until you start talking about how one becomes rich or poor, and then you have to look at what one does with their wealth or their poverty. So this is where it becomes complex to talk about, and you need to, to be honest, and you have to have a, a fully formed, kind of well-rounded view of this topic if you want to be biblical about it. So what I want to do is layer the concept of, of, of the righteous and the wicked over the, uh, over the grid of the rich and the poor. And so I'll quote Bruce Waltke one more time. He says in, in Proverbs, the wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. So you can see when you, you have the rich and the poor and you have the righteous and the wicked, the contrast between the righteous and the wicked in, the Pro, in Proverbs, that's a relational category. That's the way that you relate to God, but also the way that you relate to the community all around you and, and, and the way you interact as a community. And all of that flows from knowing that your life belongs entirely to God. And that includes your wealth. So this helps us to look at the complexity of the economic situations that people find themselves in kind of three-dimensionally, if I could say it like that. We can't look at, at the, at the two-dimensional things where you just take a snapshot of someone's life and then you make value judgments based on what they're doing or, or how they're living. You can't do that. It's, it, it's, the world that we live in is too complex for that. So when you see somebody driving down, you know, Hastings in a supercar and you go, that's a quarter million dollar car. You can't Im immediately assume that that person's like a criminal. <laughs> you can't immediately assume that. In the same way as that you can't immediately assume that the person sitting outside the coffee shop begging for change is somehow just a lazy person who won't work. You can't assume that. It's very easy to assume both of those things, but it's not right to assume both of those things. Rich and poor are not moral categories in and of themselves. And there are contours and complexities to the economic situations that we find ourselves in every day. And, and it's just never as simple as the narrative that you might hear in media. It's never as simple as the narrative of your preferred 24-7 news agency. Whichever one you watch, Whichever one you listen to, whichever podcasts you're into daily to catch up on the affairs of the world, it's never as simple as the people who just have a position and then they read everything from that place. You have to allow it to be as complex as it is. So in an effort to walk through some of that complexity and try and show you what I think Proverbs is teaching us, I want to build out a bit of a grid. And when you add the righteous and the wicked to the grid with the rich and the poor, it starts to take shape. And so what you end up with is you have the righteous rich, and you have the righteous poor. You have the wicked rich, and you have the wicked poor. And again, I'm defining those in the same way as 
Bruce Waltke with a quote, where righteousness is the way that you disadvantage yourself to the advantage of others, and wickedness is the way that you uh, advantage yourself to the disadvantage of others. You take advantage of others. And so the question you need to ask is not how much or how little a person has in terms of assigning like a moral standing to people based on how, uh, you know, if they're rich or they're poor. The question you need to ask is how did they get there? How did they get there? And Proverbs has that level of nuance, and that's why it's very helpful in our conversation. And so we'll walk through all four of these quickly. We'll look at the righteous poor first. Proverbs 13, 23 says, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. What this is saying is that the fields of the poor, that they are fertile and that they can produce enough food for them, but it can be stolen from them through injustice and oppression. It can be taken from them. That they have fertile fields, but they can be taken advantage of by others. And poverty, because of injustice, is not bad. It's no disgrace to be poor because of the situation that you are in due to the injustice we see in the wicked. If the injustice of the wicked has caused you to suffer that injustice and you have been oppressed by that, well, that's not categorically bad to be poor. You've been a victim. Think about the millions of people who leave everything behind them because of the persecution of their faith. Think about those who flee their countries because of corruption and war. Maybe they leave their city, maybe they leave their region, maybe they have to leave their country itself and they go to a new place and they they show up in a new place with nothing. They show up destitute, they show up impoverished because they've left everything they had behind due to some kind of oppression or injustice in the place where they're from. So we're not called to judge the poor as though they've done something wrong in and of themselves. The real world is more complex than that. It could be that the poor you see are categorically the righteous poor and that the reasons for their poverty are really difficult to discern from a distance. And that's why you need to get to know people. That's why you need to hear their story. You can't just look and assume you have the right knowledge on why a situation is the way that it is. You don't know and you can't have a two-dimensional view. You have to get to know them and put some contours on that relationship. The village that I grew up in in central Alberta was filled with broken homes. Uh, Where I come from, there are some who are extremely rich and there are some who are extremely poor and there are those of us who are very middle class. But some of those who are extremely poor have grown up in broken homes with generations of abuse, generations of addiction, relational dysfunction that comes from all of that. And if that's where you start from in your life, if you're the child who was born into that home, it's really difficult to break out of that in one generation. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. And apart from the intervening grace of God, it's very difficult because you just begin to follow the same patterns that you were raised with. And if they are generational patterns of abuse and addiction and dysfunction, you find yourself impoverished in the same way as your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. And the origin of some of the poverty that we see around us is the, the story of the deadbeat dad who has abandoned his family and you've got a single mom working her fingers to the bone to provide for her kids. That's not anything that she has done wrong. That's an injustice. Proverbs says, poverty because of injustice is not bad. 
But Proverbs is also clear that poverty because of laziness is. Let me show you. It says, we'll talk about the wicked poor. This is the category of the wicked poor, Proverbs 10.4. It says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. This kind of thing is all over Proverbs. Proverbs uses the category of the sluggard, which is a great word, honestly, sluggard. If you just sort of say that out loud, it rolls off the tongue quite nicely. Sluggards. The sluggard in Proverbs is marked by a few things. One, the sluggard can't get a project started. Just sits there and looks at it. It's like the, the, the project that never begins. Just an idea and they talk in the realm of ideas but never do anything. There's no action. It's laziness that, that, that leads to nothing happening. Proverbs also talks about the sluggard as the person who can't get a project finished. So you can't get it started, can't get it finished. And the other thing about the sluggard that you see in Proverbs as you read through the whole book, talking about the sluggard, the sluggard always has an excuse on why they never got it started and why they never got it finished. Can't get a project started, can't get a project finished, and always has an excuse on why. And, and this kind of laziness in Proverbs, it is a moral problem. It is. Because you have to think about this. How can you live a righteous life that advantages others if all you're ever doing is looking for an easy way out of the situation that you're in? You just always want to take the easy route, not do any work. You can't be that categorical righteous person if you're marked by laziness. It's, it's, it's clear. It's, it's also just too simple to assume that when you look at the poor, you, you know why they ended up the way they are. And so are some people who are poor victims? Yes. Are some people who are poor lazy? Yes. And in Christ, we are called to serve and love both without qualification. But we're not called to serve and love them without working to remedy the root cause of their poverty, whether that be injustice or laziness. We can help people to grow either out of their injustice and oppression that they have experienced or out of the moral problem that they have of not wanting to work hard. And you can help people to grow out of that. And so we serve and love all people, but we always do so looking to the root causes that we might be able to help them better along the way. So that's the Righteous poor, the righteous, uh, the, the righteous poor and the wicked poor. Let's talk about the rich. The righteous rich. Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Proverbs 10, 22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And, and I know some of you are going, that sounds like the prosperity gospel, and we don't believe the prosperity gospel. No, we do not believe the prosperity gospel. That's not the prosperity gospel. That's just the Bible. That's just what it says. And you go, okay, please, Brett, explain that. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. And please take it out of a financial category and make it a spiritual category for me. No, <laughs> I won't, because that's not what it says. And if that offends you, that's okay. You can take it up with the author of Proverbs. I am not him. Proverbs has nothing bad to say about being wealthy in general. Because wealth in and of itself can be the product of God's blessing and diligent hard work. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. 12.27 says, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Now you might not know what game is because you're not from the country like me, let me tell you. All of you are urban dwellers. That's, that's the animal that you went out and hunted. 
You've gone out and done all of the hard work of hunting it, but then you just bring it back and let it rot and you don't, you don't roast it. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game. It's actually one of the marks of the sluggard, the person who does part of the task, but doesn't complete the task. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. So the, the righteous rich are not the only category that you find in Proverbs though. There's also the wicked rich. Uh, Proverbs 15, 27 says, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. 16, 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. 28, 6, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. See, Proverbs is honest about wealth. It can come from diligence, and it can come from unjust gain or injustice, and it can come from crookedness. It's honest about this. Just think about it for a second. Before, I talked about the righteous poor. They're the ones who had the fertile fields that would produce enough, but what they gained in the produce of their field was taken away by those who were wicked. Who is it that are taking away the produce of those who are poor? Well, it's the rich who are wicked, the wicked rich. They're the ones who are gaining through crooked and unjust ways. And Proverbs is filled with warnings against acting wickedly or selfishly in relation to wealth. And so I want to fill in our grid. Look at the next one. We have the righteous rich. They've grown wealthy through diligence, wisdom, and hard work. We have the righteous poor who have suffered injustice. We have the wicked rich who have grown wealthy through unjust gain. And we have the wicked poor who will be marked as the sluggard or lazy. And here's what Proverbs is saying. Poverty because of injustice is not bad, but poverty because of laziness is. Wealth because of diligence in work is not bad, but wealth because of dishonest gain is. And that's the economic framework that gives us, that, that Proverbs gives us with regard to wealth. The issue that we have though is that the motivations and the intent of the human heart don't map really well onto a grid. That, that, that's the difficult part is we, we have our hearts and what we're, we're doing with this. So I wanna get to the heart of the matter. I wanna look at our posture toward wealth. That's our first point. I don't know what it's like here, but at the church that I pastor, the introduction does not count against preaching minutes. <laughs> so thus far, I've just had introduction, but the clock starts now. And then the, the amount of minutes that Jake gave me to preach, I begin. We're gonna talk about our posture toward wealth. Um, Proverbs 30, this is the only prayer in the book of Proverbs, and it's a really, really good one. Proverbs 30, verse seven. He's praying, he says, two things I ask of you, Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That is a good prayer. Proverbs has a lot to say about the posture of our hearts toward wealth and material possessions, and really none of it is better than this prayer. This is a phenomenal explanation of the posture of our hearts or the, 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 good, the good posture that we should aim for in our hearts. He's saying, God, give me neither poverty lest I steal and sin against you and give me neither wealth or riches lest I deny you and forget my need for you. 
So on the one hand, we know that, that poverty can lead a person to steal in an effort to try and get out of it. And on the other hand, riches can lead a person to deny God. There's just no felt need for God because of everything I've ever needed. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. So when we're in trouble, when we're in need, we can always run to God. We know this. But I just want to ask you, is that where you run? Look at verse 10 that I just read alongside the next verse. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. So when the righteous man is in trouble, he runs to God. When the rich man is in trouble, he runs to his wealth. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, the fortified city, and like a high wall in his imagination. It's that high wall that'll keep you safe. When the rich man's in trouble, he runs to his wealth. And so I want to ask you, when you're stressed out, freaked out, worried, filled with anxiety, fearful about the future, do you open the banking app on your phone or do you open the scriptures? Where do you get your safety? Can your wealth give you mental and emotional security? Does your wealth comfort you in times of affliction? So I've, as a pastor, I've never sat with someone who just received a terminal diagnosis and, and had them look at me and go, oh, I'm fine, don't worry about it, I'm rich. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. There's just no one that I've sat down with who's received a terrible diagnosis or some terrible news and they go, well, don't worry about it, I'm rich. That's the high wall that protects the person in his imagination if they've got lots of wealth. That's the strong city. His wealth is his strong city, but it's a figment of his imagination. The Lord is truly a strong tower, but in the mind of the rich, I, I, I think that it can be tempting, and this is what the prayer that we read is, that it can be tempting to just think that your wealth is your security. So Christ City, do you trust God? Or do you trust the balance sheet on your investments? Right? None of us are perfect at this. I know when I get anxious about the future, I can think about, well, I've been saving diligently, and so I think I'll, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Or I can think, that's good and wise and I should do that. But God, you're my anchor. You're my source of comfort. You're my strong tower. When I'm in trouble, I run into it. None of us are perfect at this. I'm not perfect at this. We waver and we, we look at other things, material things that are going to help us to feel like we have some sense of safety. But... We need to run to God. Because when the storms of life come for you, and I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but the storms of life will come for you. Your wealth is a terrible anchor to put your ultimate trust in. That anchor in the midst of the storm, that anchor will not hold. Further, you might not even be able to hang on to your wealth anyways. Proverbs 23, verse 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. 
Any of you who invested in cryptocurrency or NFTs, you know it just, just floated away. Here, here, here's the point. No matter your situation, do not trust in that which can be taken from you. Do not trust in that which can be taken from you. If you trust in money, you will never have enough to feel comfortable. I have never sat down with someone who really trusts in wealth and found them to be very, very happy with the level that they have. The people that I've spoken with over the years who have trusted in their wealth, they never have enough to feel comfortable. And when you ask them how much more do they need, the answer is just a little. And that answer just never changes. Whether you've got very little or very much, if you trust in wealth, you always need just a little more to feel comfortable. But if you trust in God, that will endure through all kinds of suffering and trials and all of the bad news that can come to us in this life because the true wealth and the true inheritance that we have in Christ transcends the material wealth that we can acquire in just a few decades of work. When Christ is the anchor of your soul, when he is what holds you in the midst of the storm, when you are in the boat and the waves are rocking and you know that your anchor is Christ, you can have peace no matter what the waves of struggle may come and wash over you. You can have peace because you are anchored in Christ and he is immovable. Christ said he don't place your trust in that which can be taken from you. Okay, it's not wrong to have wealth. It's wrong to place your ultimate trust in it. That's why this prayer from Proverbs 30 is so wise. This prayer is about contentment. It's about contentment. The opposite of contentment in Proverbs is craving. Proverbs 10 verse 2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. The craving. One scholar said the craving here is the unrestrained, uncontrolled, greedy appetite of those unwilling to live within the restraints of God's will. It's an uncontrolled thing. Have you ever had cravings? Like proper cravings? I can say this here today because my wife's not with me. When she was pregnant, oh my goodness. There was a point when she looked at me, don't tell her I said this either. And I'm looking at you, Maisie, don't tell her. <laughs> when, when, when we were pregnant with our oldest daughter, uh, she looked at me one night, it was probably 10 o'clock, and she said, I need Cool Ranch Doritos right now. And I did not say, really? I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and I went out, and then on the way out the door, no joke, she said, I need a Pepsi. Also, I need a cream soda. And I don't understand how that works, but that's a craving. Like she needed it, right? Now that kind of craving's fine. The kind of craving that it's talked about here in Proverbs is not. It says the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. See, the craving of the wicked is a craving for more and more and more and more, and that craving is, is what marks the life of the wicked who will disadvantage others for the advantage of self. 
The life of the wicked is marked by a craving for selfish gain that comes at the cost of others. It's an advantaging of self and a disadvantaging of others, and it's categorically greed. But this is contrasted with what we see in the righteous person. The wicked crave and are never satisfied, but the righteous are content. They're content. Paul the Apostle in the book of Philippians, he talks about learning to be content with little or with much. This is a model for us. If you have very little, that's okay. Be content because you have him. If you have much, don't trust in it. And don't crave for more. Be content with what God has given you. It's similar to what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, contentment and craving might give shape to the posture of our hearts. That's what maybe we're walking around with that people can't see. But that heart posture is actually revealed in our actions. Our heart posture is revealed in our actions. It's what we do with what we have. So the first thing was our posture toward wealth. The second thing, what we do with our wealth. Proverbs 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Okay? This is not a transactional vending machine kind of view of God where if you just put in some generosity, you get out riches. That's not what this is saying. That's not it. That, that is the prosperity gospel and we're not about that. This is saying, this is talking about becoming the kind of person who honors God with what they have, no matter what that is. Honoring God with what you have is then an assurance that God can trust you with what he wants to give you. If you honor God with little, you could be trusted with more. If you honor God with little, you could be trusted with more. Proverbs eleven twenty four 24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. 14, 21, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. 14, 31, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. You see a theme here? 1917, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. 2827, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. The theme of generosity. We're talking about what you do with what you have. See, there are three things you can do with money. You can give it, you can save it and invest it, or you can spend it. I mean, that's pretty simple, but I'm a simple guy. You can give it, you can save or invest it, or you can spend it. Whether you're talking about giving or saving or spending, the, 
the way you do it will be marked with either generosity or greed. So whatever you do with your finances, whatever you do with the little you have or the much you have, it'll be marked with either generosity or greed. One is self-centered and the other is shaped by being transformed through relationship with God. In Proverbs, the wicked are marked by their greed. And I want to say this, your generosity or greed are not defined by the level of your wealth. Some of the most generous people I've ever met are poor. And some of the greediest people I've ever met are poor. This won't extend anything to anyone. It's not about the level of your wealth. It's not about the level of your wealth. They're defined by the posture of your heart and then your actions, not the amount. So Proverbs tells us that the righteous are generous people. So you can be rich and greedy and you can be poor and greedy. You can be rich and generous and you can be poor and generous. It's about the posture of your heart and what you do with what you have. Jesus pointed this out to his disciples when he called attention to the poor woman who dropped a few cents into the offering. Her trust was in God and her generosity meant that she gave out of her poverty. Luke 21 verse 1 says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. That is generosity. And it was not about the amount. It was about the heart intent, and it was about the action. Posture of the heart and what we do with what we have. Again, Paul the Apostle gave instructions to the rich from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Yeah, I said, it's not wrong to have wealth. It's wrong to place your ultimate trust in it. And I said, it's not wrong to have wealth, but what you do with it matters. What you do with it matters. So the first point was our posture toward wealth. Secondly, what we do with our wealth. And then third, wisely building wealth. I want to give you five things that Proverbs says about wisely building your wealth. Now, four of them come from what I've already said, and then I'm going to add one more to it. But I want to leave you with a list uh, so that you, as you're reading through Proverbs, can see this. Because I think if you, if you take everything that I've said here and you give a reading from the beginning to the end of Proverbs, you'll see that Proverbs has a very comprehensive view of our economic situations. So I want to give you a list. And it doesn't matter how much you have in this moment. It does not matter how much you have in this moment. I think these are principles that are true and that if you follow them, you will be able to continue to grow in your generosity and in your righteous behavior toward others. So I'm going, to, I'm going to go through them. Number one, honor God. Proverbs 3.9, you already heard it. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Number one, honor God with what you have. Honor God with what you have. Number two, be generous. Proverbs 11.24, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. 
Number one, honor God. Number two, be generous. And you go, Brett, uh, you told us that you're going to give us five things about building wealth. So far, those do not include me building wealth. Those include me giving my money away. And I would go, yes, now you're starting to understand. If that makes no sense to you, it, that's okay. It's just that you don't understand economics from God's perspective. We don't follow the same worldly system that we see all around us of hoarding and gathering and greed and taking advantage of others. We honor God with our wealth and we're generous. It's actually the first key principles of building wealth. If you don't do those things, you won't. Not truly, not righteously, not in a way that is modeling the behavior that we've seen from God and from the saints for 2,000 years of Christian history. Number one, honor God. Number two, be generous. Number three, work diligently. Proverbs 10, verse four, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. When there is work to do, get at it. Where I'm from, in the country, we say things like, make hay while the sun shines. I, I realize none of you have heard that before, that's okay. Make hay while the sun shines. That means when the crop is ready and it's growing, you go out there and you get it. You harvest it when it's ready. Be, be working, work diligently. Number four, aim for contentment. Proverbs 30, verse seven, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord, and, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Aim for contentment. And you go, aim for contentment. That sounds a lot like month-to-month -month living. I think it's the wisdom of God. I think if you're aiming to be very, very wealthy, you may be tempted to do things that you would not otherwise do. And I think that if you are stuck in poverty, you need to work hard and take your time and get out of it but you need to be content with where you are. There's contentment. I, I know what it is to be, Paul said, in want, and I know what it is to have plenty, but I know what it is to be content in either situation. Contentment. I think it is good and right for us to live within our means, to be content with what we have. Number five, be patient. This is the one that you've not yet heard. Be patient, Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, whoever gathers little by little will increase it. So be patient. Now, I have a fair amount of gray hair in my beard now, so I'm starting to sound like a bit of an old man on occasion. And I was talking to my kids about some of this, and I realized that as I was talking to my kids, I was starting to sound like not just an old man, I was starting to sound like my dad which is, you know, I love my dad, but that's not something I want, right? Most of us don't aim for that. Some of, some of you may aim for that, that's great. I was like, oh, no, I sound like my dad. Here's why. Um, I'm, I'm old enough to say this, but I'm not old. Can I, I'm just trying to qualify my age, I guess. I'm trying to, to figure out where I am in life. I'm realizing this is more therapy for me than you. That's okay, though. Um, when I say things like young people today, I start to realize I sound a bit aged, Okay? Young people, when you come out of university and you enter into your first or second job, like a real job, in the field that maybe you've trained in or something that you've got a hold of because of uh, the education that you've gained, 
And you show up in the first week or two of that job and you think you are the bomb. Let me just tell you something. You're terrible at your job. You don't know anything yet. There are years of investment in you before there's going to be a return. People who own companies, people who are, are managers, they understand this and that's why they're training you, but you're not good at your job yet. You're young and you have a lot to learn. Now, when I was 23, 24, I also knew everything, so don't worry. Here's my point. There are loads of 20-somethings and even 30-somethings who are looking at it going like, why don't I make that much money? I want to make that much money. And you're talking about the person who's been in the industry for 25 or 30 years. The fact is you're not that good at the job yet. And you need to bide your time and be patient as you go forward. And here's the temptation that we face every single day in the city of Vancouver in our generation. Just pick up and move somewhere else. And there's like no stability there. And so you just go and you move on because there's like, well, they'll give me 5% more. They'll give me this opportunity. They'll give me that. Or you move into the gig economy and you're like, well, I've got a friend who's making $1,000 a day doing this or $1,500 a day doing that. And you're like, you're right. He told you about that because he had happened once. It's not 52 weeks a year of work, but you can be enamored by hasty gain. And you can look at it and go, I want to get rich. Let me tell you something. One, and this is going to sound real profound. This is why you come here. Spend less than you make every month. And your wealth will grow. Good. Okay, good. Don't quit your job. Because let me tell you, everyone around you who are on the same level as you have all the same temptations, but they lack wisdom. Don't lack wisdom. Don't quit your job. Because what happens is, this is, the, this is the best way to get promoted, let me tell you. The best way to get promoted in your work, don't quit. Okay, because when everyone else around you quits, guess who gets promoted? The one who remained. And guess when they hire a new crop of newbies who don't know anything coming out of university, you're like one year ahead of them, you're now their boss. And you're like, yes, I got that promotion. Just don't quit. Be the person who is there to invest in people, to love and care for them, and to do a diligent job, work hard, and be patient. Be patient. So the five things, honor God, be generous, work diligently, aim for contentment, and be patient. Proverbs gives us an honest, comprehensive view of wealth and poverty, uh, of contentment and generosity. And one of the great temptations that we have is to put our trust in the wrong inheritance. In the wrong inheritance. So Proverbs is about wisdom for life. It's helping us with the here and now stuff, how to handle ourselves. But it would be a mistake for me to talk you through all of this and miss out on the true inheritance and the better inheritance that we have in Christ. And so let me finish with 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, perishes though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christ said he trusts in the greater inheritance. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful that we don't have to wonder about your love that we don't have to wonder about your provision, that we don't have to wonder about how things are going to go with us because on an ultimate level, you have already promised every single one of those things. And so we ask you to help us to fight the temptation to trust in what we have. Help us to trust you in everything, in every way that we might glorify you in the way that we live our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.